0: Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Patrick Campbell, co-founder and CEO at Price Intelligently, on
1: how pricing and understanding the customer are two faces of the same coin.
0: This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou.
1: Hi, and today I'm with Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Hey, how are you? Good you. So tell me, who are you, Patrick?
0: <laughs> quite a quite a nebulous question for the morning <laughs> here. Um, on purpose. So, uh, you know, professionally, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Price and Lean, makers of ProfitWell. We're based here in Boston, although I'm on the road right now. Previous to that, I worked in a little bit of the Boston startup scene and then in corporate tech, both for uh, Google and then for the intelligence community.
1: So you have to kill me if you ask any question about that, right?
0: Exactly. So, yeah, very Jason Bourne. Born, like don't worry about it
1: I'm not a big no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> what's your background are you an engineer no so I,
0: I would never claim to be an engineer even though I can you know push some code I uh, my background's in econometrics and math more data science my first you know bigger jobs I was building different value models obviously for very, very different outcomes. You know, working for U.S. intelligence community is, you know, a little bit different than hunting money at Google, for example, using, using different models. And so on this side of, of the house, I'm, I'm on the business side, essentially. But um, I can get technical, but I would never take away from a full-time uh, or a full-stack engineer.
1: It's fascinating that you talked about data and pricing because a lot of the startups and the startups I, I work with or talk to, they're all, you know, struggling with that one, right? It's yeah. like, what's the pricing model we should adopt? And then when even... When they have the model figured out. They still don't know what is actually the pricing, actual price they should actually sell the products for. So why did you get into pricing? What was the, the, the trigger that make you go from the US intelligence and say, you know what, I'm going to deal with pricing. <laughs> I mean, what was yeah, that?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think I could spin a very like... Oh, that's a great story. But I think that in reality, <laughs> um, I had this background in, in math and I've always been fascinated by value, like how we value things and, and also how different inputs can create like an output value. But I think that the real kind of impetus to, to pricing was I was working at a company called Jimvara, which is a startup here in Boston. They've raised about you know 50 million. And, and what they do is customizable jewelry. So high-end jewelry, kind of like Blue Nile, but more gemstone based. Um mm-hmm. And one of the problems that they had there that I worked on for a bit was pricing. The reason was because of all the customization, there was like 1.7 million different SKUs. And what was fascinating was that if you had a very highly customized piece that was objectively pretty ugly. For some reason, <laughs> the willingness to pay and the value for that piece of jewelry was much higher than, you know, something simple, you know, something that you could get anywhere else. So after working kind of on pricing there and kind of working kind of through that problem a bit, really just kind of discovered that this is something that has an enormous impact on the bottom line. Like we would make small changes that didn't take much work on our part and all of a sudden we would see big boosts in revenue and as you kind of alluded to no one knows anything about it like no one understands it no one understands how to set things up and That's kind of sad, too, because if you think about your business as as a system, everything that you're doing from your marketing and your sales all the way to your product is used to either drive someone to a point of conversion or to support them sticking around longer to give you more cash, either through repeat purchases or subscription services. It's kind of fascinating that even though it's like that central part of your business, we're so bad at it and just end up guessing most of the time, unfortunately.
1: That would apply to consumer products, but you have a more focus on SaaS, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and, and the reason it's it's so much more
0: interesting in the B two B world is because you don't have the luxury of well, we can just grow through acquisition, right? Because you know, even if you're targeting a niche group of you know consumers, you need a lot of you know a lot of them, and you have a lot of them in a lot of B two C situations in B2B, the impact that you can have with pricing is just astronomically higher. And it's still a situation where we talk to folks who are guessing constantly, and they have really, really great products and really, really interesting customers, but they just don't know how to make money
1: off of them. You have a background in math, and you said you're very data-driven. But when we talk pricing, and you hinted at that, you also talk about consumer behavior. You just said, I mean, having Mm -hmm. this complex piece of jewelry will make suddenly people be willing to pay more for it. Is that something you are including in the the way you are making your pricing models or you just rely on the data and that surfaces the consumer behavior. Yeah, that's a great question. So, it comes down to
0: measuring consumer sentiment. That's exactly what you need to do when setting up your pricing. And this is what's called value-based pricing. So, there's three ways to price, you know, well, there's four, but three main ways and and one is cost plus. This doesn't really make sense for software subscription businesses because your costs just because the birth of the cloud is not huge relative to each, you know, additional user. There's competitive based pricing, which, you know, seems like a good idea because it at least gives you a data point. But in reality, your customers don't care about your competitors as much as they care about what you're offering. In addition to that, you're also assuming that your competitor has done their homework when in reality, they probably haven't either. Um, But then the the big one that we talk about is this concept of value-based pricing. And and what value-based pricing essentially is, is collecting data from your customers. And you can do that in a number of different ways. And we do it at scale. That's essentially what, what we do with our software. And utilizing that data to essentially figure out that this particular customer persona likes these features and is willing to pay this amount for those features. So essentially aligning that persona to that package and then to that ultimate price.
1: Basically what you are doing is putting this all thinking about pricing on a strategic level, because when I, when I talk again I to startups, it seems that a lot of people are thinking pricing as a tactic. Oh, mm. let's see what we have to do today. We have this dashboard and let's play A, B testing, pricing, whatever. So basically yeah. you, you're putting a, a stack higher is that correct? Yeah,
0: exactly. And the way to think about it in an organization is because of this central thread that pricing holds, everything kind of feeds into it, right? Those tactics are important. You know, because for some businesses, ending your prices in nines or ending it in zeros will actually have an impact on your conversion and definitely an impact on you know your bottom line, especially if you're a consumer B two C situation. But overall, if those are the only things that you're doing, those tactics, you're missing out on the central aspect of pricing, which is understanding your customer and and making sure you're going after the right customer. And so, it's absolutely something that needs to be on a you know strategic level because you know you have customer development. Processes for what you should be building, how you should be designing it. If you don't have a process for pricing, you end up leaving quite bluntly an astronomical amount of money on the table.
1: One of the other things that often happens is that it seems that when somebody creates a new company or thinking about the pricing model, Well, they do, they simply benchmark themselves against competition, (laughs) right? You know, it's like not very easy, but it seems like the most obvious thing to do. Is that something you would advocate or you would, you think that you would just, because you just mentioned, oh, the competition might have not done their homework, or do you think it's something you should completely leave out?
0: So if you're in a very like commodity based market, there's a very high bar for commodity And, and no one in subscription businesses and software really, I mean, maybe email, maybe like transactional email and maybe, you know, even marketing email. Is, is a commodity base at this point but even like CRMs like if you create another CRM like it's, it's not even a commodity even though it's a huge crowded space and so What we recommend is basically you got to do your homework by collecting this data from your customers, talking to your customers and getting info from them on on some level. And then you do want to keep your competitors and costs in mind, because obviously, if you can't cover your costs just of your overhead, you're not going to be in business. And and also, you're, you're likely not to be 10x your competitor just because of the nature of what you're doing. But if that's solely what you rely on, what ends up happening is you put yourself in either a race to the bottom situation, either on actual price point or by you know, feature set and positioning. So there's a reason that a new CRM wouldn't copy everything Salesforce has done and put it out there and, and charge the same price because Salesforce's brand is worth so much more and their sales force is worth so much more and then all the different things that they've built over the past you know decade or so. And so it's one of those things where what you really should be doing is kind of doing that homework and then finding what the differences between you and your competitor are. That might be a customer choice, like maybe you're targeting a very specific type of customer that your competitor isn't, or it might be kind of a feature set. And then those are your beachheads on actually attacking and making more money off of your customers than your competitor might be because you might find Hey, I, you know, I'm going to make it $5 less and I'm going to target a customer that they're, you know, nonprofits, which, you know, they're not targeting at all. And we're going to be known as the nonprofit CRM, or it might be $150 more because you added HIPAA compliance that your competitor doesn't have, and you're going to be the, you know, CRM for the healthcare world, for instance. So it's just something where the path of least resistance is to look at your competitors, but the problem with that path is that they very likely have not done their homework either. And, and we can speak pretty objectively about that just because we've seen <laughs> and talked to more, you know, SaaS companies than anyone else out there.
1: A lot of early, especially early stage companies, the focus is, of course, the customer, but the focus is acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. It's really acquisition, acquisition, which is understandable. You know, you want to have a lot of customers being able to grow the, create that hockey stick yeah. or whatever. If I listen to you, do you think that price is actually, pricing is more important than acquisition? Yeah,
0: so you're right. You got to acquire customers. If you don't acquire customers,
1: you're out of business, right? But
0: I think what's happened over the past few years, and it's been the luxury of money, you know, investment being relatively inexpensive, is we've essentially gone to a world where we grow through CAC, customer acquisition costs, and we've created what we like to call CAC fiends. That's like a label that we have for, you know, our customer personas that come in because, and we can recognize them like almost immediately when we start talking to them on the phone. Like these are the customers where we ask them, oh, who are your customers? And they go developers and that's it. Like what kind of developers, you know, (laughs) what do they do? You know, not even, we're not even getting into like psychographics or anything. We're just getting into like, is it Python developers? (laughs) You know, and, um, and they don't know, like, they don't know their unit economics typically, like what's your LTE? you get a CAC ratio and you get a bunch of blank faces, even at the executive level. And and I think that I'm bringing this up because it's scary because what we found and and the data shows, and and we've shown this in the SaaS world, McKinsey's shown this in the general business world, working on your monetization or even your retention has two to four X of the impact on your bottom line than working on your acquisition. So that means if you put a dollar in via acquisition, you raise your, your volume by 1%. You might see a 3% boost in your profit, for instance. But if you put that, you know, improvement in retention, like you improve your retention by 1%, you're actually going to see double that. You're going to see 6%. And then if you improve your monetization, like let's say raise your prices 1%, you'll actually see about 4x that, so 12% boost. And and it's something that it's it's a lot easier to like look at the data and, and say, oh, that's what we should be doing than to actually do it. Because at the end of the day it's a lot easier to pick up a phone and try to talk to and convert a customer or send out an email than it is to you know face some tough decisions around your pricing or your retention but I think we're heading into a really interesting market right now, particularly around money not being as easy to acquire. And so growing through yeah. acquisition is not going to necessarily be the best bet. And kind of the, to dovetail this this conversation or this part of the, the question, I would say um, if you can raise more money than God, like if you can raise you know and keep raising, I would absolutely grow through acquisition. I mean, you've seen companies do this really well with like New Relic, Optimizely and some of the other Fenton startups, but- If you um, can't and you're in the 99.8% of the rest of us, focus on acquisition, obviously, to kind of prove out your concept, but really make sure you have some sort of a pricing and, of course, a retention process out there. So, I don't know. I probably made some enemies on that answer, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) I'm I'm here to speak truth to power, I guess.
1: all these lessons were there lessons you knew back in 2012 when you launched price intelligently how
0: cool would it be if that was the case right um how <laughs> yeah, cool is it be? yeah i mean we've um we've made our own mistakes on pricing like i i'm not gonna lie like um, we've you know <laughs> early on um because we launched this as a pure software product so the trajectory of our business is we're fully self funded that was more out of not really out of necessity but more out of hey we could raise you know 1.2 million and not know what to do with it and not know exactly what problem we're solving. And so we, we held off on that. And what we found is after we released this touchless product that people needed a lot more expertise, and they need a lot more help just to be confident with the data. And so we added a services element to it where you know we essentially will, will help you with the software, we run the software, we run the data analysis, and then they kind of boil up the findings to you. And now we're getting back into pure software with this product called ProfitWell, which is essentially financial metrics for subscription businesses and we got different add-ons that are doing the monetization aspects for you. But long story short, we, uh, we we did not know all of this starting out. And we just learned a lot of it from every single SaaS company we worked with. We were literally sitting with the C team. So I'm sitting across from the C team at, you know, some really, really large companies and, you know, some really, really fast growing companies and, and just learning from them.
1: Since the start, was it to only focus on uh, SaaS companies or was it just a happy accident?
0: I think... Uh, yeah, that's a great question too. We, we actually started off focusing just on pricing in general. So we run our acquisition heavily through inbound, um, so through content. And the main reason for that is because not a lot of people are writing about what we write about. And you know, even if they are, they're not going to the depth that we are. So we've just kind of attracted a lot of people just through that natural flow of uh, leads. And we started off, we've done work for Reebok. We've done work for Hallmark, the greeting card company. Um, we've done some work for some other retail products. We priced, uh, I can't remember what it is, but it's a combination four-wheeler, hovercraft, like parachute huh. ultralight thing like that. I mean, we were like, well, the model works on, you know, cause we measure value, right? So as long as we yeah. can get access to your customers or potential customers, we can, we can get you some elasticity data. But then what we ended up, you know, you know how it is with, you know, focusing, we started to find that the knowledge Delta with pricing and SAS was so much bigger than in retail and other companies that we just started to double down on, on SAS. And, What's great about it is there's some very specific things in you know subscription pricing that we were able to learn early on that we've been really able to really help you know our customers going forward with.
1: You just mentioned something very interesting because it was actually my next question. Sure. You said that you were using content because. The onboarding, I mean, why does a customer come to you and say, oh, we cannot figure out pricing? Because more often than not, they don't know that they cannot figure it out. I mean, they understand that they have a hard time figuring out the pricing model, but they might not think it the way you do. So how, especially at the beginning, sure. how are you approaching customers? What were you telling them? Like, oh, you need us. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, I I don't know if I can swear on here. I almost said <laughs> what we do is we try, to, we try to create what we like to call the oh shit moment. And what I mean by that is... There's customers who come to us in, in, in two different ways and, and they all involve or creating the requirement One is, is they've grown through acquisition and now all of a sudden their costs and their growth is stalled because they've taken their CAC as far as they can, essentially. And their VC team is like, hey, you have to figure out your pricing. Like you have not figured this out. And that is the next layer of growth. Because for those VCs who can get companies that grow through CAC, all of a sudden the next echelon of growth comes from, okay, so how do we reduce the CAC and then boost LTV? That creates the requirement really easily because it's like the CEO goes, hey, we got to solve this problem. Who's going to take it? The marketing? lead or the product lead raises their hand. They don't necessarily have any formal training on it, probably haven't dealt with it before. And then they go and search for people and they find us. And then the other one is people reading content and basically saying, Hey, that point that you made in that article, we hear that from our customers all the time. Or hey, that's exactly what I've been trying to tell the CEO for years. let's get on the phone. And so to answer your question directly, what we did early on is we were just very unabashedly honest about what we could do. So it was, hey, we can get you this data, and this data will give you a finger in the wind, like we said. It's like you're guessing right now, you're 100% guessing. We're going to get you data from customers, and that data is going to show you elasticity, and then we're going to make some decisions based on that data but at least you'll have some data. And then that evolved over time as we started becoming, um, I hate the word expert, but we started to become you know, the people who thought about this more than anyone else in the world. And because of that, all of a sudden we started getting a hell of a lot more expertise where we could say, not only are we going to give you data, but here's the recommendation that's going to come from that data. And then here's the other recommendation, not only for your pricing, but also for your marketing, your product, et cetera. That really helped, I think, kind of build because as we got more customers, the different layers of support have really helped or the different layers of knowledge have really helped us kind of take ourselves to the next level. And that's kind of one of the pricing mistakes that we've made is when we were pricing really early on, you know, it was very, very inexpensive, but we also weren't necessarily giving the same product that we are now. And so it's kind of a a natural thing that happened.
1: So basically, creating content was almost a necessity because, as you say, there was people would come to you because you created content. I want to listen to you just a little bit about this. We live in a very marketing-driven world, so you have to become like the word you just use, expert in something, yeah. so people can. think that word. You have you yeah. <laughs> build credibility. How did you go from transforming your knowledge into uh, content? I mean, how did you do that? How do you establish yourself as this voice as an expert? Sorry to call yeah. That. No, no, it's fine. The
0: only reason I'm I'm weird about it is because um, my mom went back to school when I was younger. To get her bachelor's degree. And she had worked for 25 years in her field, which is trade show marketing. And Mm -hmm. she was writing her thesis on something with trade shows, but her professor had told her she can't use her knowledge, just use external sources, because the level to get to expert is 30 years for academia. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So that's always like stuck in my head. And now it's like, hey, I've been, you know, I've been working with data for a decade and data has changed so drastically, like trying to see, like, oh, I'm an expert. You know, it's like, eh, there's still stuff I'm learning. And but anyways, um, to answer your question, I think part of it was in, I think it sounds smarter for me to say this than it was actually at the time, but it wasn't like, oh, content is our future. Like we're going to have to like blog everything. It was more, we had coincidentally, we got a free HubSpot account. That was really great because that's not cheap. Nice. Um,
1: that's why you didn't need funding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that would
0: have required the million dollars. now um, So one of our co-founders, he's the former VP product or leads product still at, at HubSpot. Every employee gets a free HubSpot account. And so we got to use his. So there might've been a chicken or the egg situation here in terms of content. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the actual content, I think we have a little bit of a cocky confidence in, in terms of what we write. But that confidence is still has a little bit of a layer of humility to it. When we were writing, it was things that we were learning or things that we believe. And we basically set those things up as logical arguments. Why you shouldn't be discounting. Here are the three biggest reasons you shouldn't be discounting. Rather than being BuzzFeedy and like giving one sentence reason, we would give one sentence and then we would go deep. And I think that helped our content stand out because we compete against a lot of just consultants, you know, who don't have software like we do, don't have data like we do. And their knowledge is what they're selling. So they're selling essentially a PowerPoint deck to 10 different companies. Um, Because of that, they don't want to publish the content that we're publishing. and, And that allowed us to kind of stand out. I would get DMs from some of these competitors, and they're not really competitors anymore, but you know, who were like, you shouldn't be publishing this, you know, this is what we sell, you know, that kind of thing. I was like, Oh, man, like, this actually isn't that compelling what we wrote, you know. So, um, so anyways, we would do that, and then we were also just very open with just giving out the knowledge. So when we would discover something. Or even, you know, our models, our model has a lot of sophistication built into it and our software and our algorithm, but there's a way that you could do what we do. It won't give you the accuracy. It won't give you the depth of data, but it'll give you enough. And we're like, yeah, we'll publish that. We'll share that. You know, we'll share how to do this because we're not going to try to like stiff arm like an early stage startup. We want to actually help them because eventually they're going to need, you know, our help either through ProfitWell, which is, you know, that new product I mentioned, or some bigger pricing help when they've made, you know, all that acquisition and, you know, need our help monetizing, essentially.
1: Jumping off on that, what is your ideal customer profile? Sure.
0: So, and this is a little bit of a struggle we have now because we're in a little bit of a transition. We essentially have two companies building right now. So on the price intelligently side, we are typically dealing with either a company that has a million ARR or higher. So we have companies that hundreds of millions of ARR all the way down to, you know, a million, but that's kind of, it's a tough range, right? Because it's a really wide range, but I would say you know, our personas, the earlier stage growth folks, it's probably a million to 10 million ARR. They want a little bit of a different package than the folks who are about 11 million to 50 million. Um, and then the 50 million on up, those are kind of how we bifurcate or separate out our market. And then there's some you know, specifics that shifts who's really the good target there. But I would say anyone who's a subscription business in those three categories. And then our content you know, is really helpful for the folks before that. ProfitWell is the financial metrics for hooks right into your billing system, gives you your churn, and it's also free, which is great. I think we officially two months ago became the number one Tool in the world for subscription metrics, um, which is great. We're pretty proud of because, I and mean, it's free, so that helps. Um, free doesn't mean that it's you know bad. It's also you know the most accurate one on the market, which we're pretty proud of too. But that one, it's probably from zero MRR and all the way up to about fifty million MRRs or ARR. Excuse me, is, is kind of the target right now. And we found these out a lot of times just by using our own dog food, by actually like practicing what we preach in terms of quantifying our buyer personas, you know, collecting sentiment data and kind of figuring out like who our buyer are is and then what we can do with those buyers in terms of our own packaging and pricing.
1: Since you also, of course, collaborate with Notion Capital, but especially because of your content, I guess you must also have potential customers that are not in this range. For instance, pre-revenue startups. Yeah. Do you talk to them at all? Absolutely. So we
0: do deal with some pre-revenue startups a lot of times, but they've typically raised like their series A. So that's kind of another label for either a million ARR or have raised their series A. And we occasionally do work with people who are previous to that, but it's just not our target customer. And, And the main reason is not because we can't help them, but frankly, from a sales perspective, It's just selling to startups, unless you like really tap into that market and really focus on it is not easy. And so for us, you know, we, we take them inbound, but if it's something where, you know, we notice them outbound, we're not necessarily going to reach out to them unless we're going to, you know, share content. Like I get on phone calls all the time with like early stage startups, just to like help them just because we're a big believer in sharing that knowledge, as I mentioned, but it's not necessarily something where we're like, Hey, like, why don't you buy our software and we'll do this project and we'll do all this stuff just because I think it's Um, it's not necessarily like the most helpful for them so long story short we work with early stage folks but it's more of a measure of like what they need and aligning it to to what they
1: need last question uh, before we wrap up Uh, do you have any sales I mean how do you go about sales do you have any sales team how does it work? yeah
0: so um, once again a little bit difficult because we have the two businesses essentially but um, on the price intelligently side we do have a sales team and it's classic Aaron Ross predictable revenue we have BDRs AEs and then a GM who oversees the whole business, who's still involved a little bit in sales. You know, that's, there's a lot, it's a whole nother podcast to talk about the fascinating, you know, nature of sales, but... Um, and then the profit well side, we're actually starting to experiment with and, and getting you know fairly successful with this whole support driven sales model. So if you look at companies like Atlassian or Slack, you know Slack's the one that everyone likes to talk about right now, um, which is uh, right. <laughs> um, which for for good reason. Don't get me wrong, um, but they um, <laughs> I heard and I I, I don't know, but I, I believe their chief marketing officer at this conference I was speaking at said that they have it was something like it was definitely hundreds hundreds of support people. And those support folks, they were trying to figure out how they didn't need an inside sales team. They didn't need that, but they could somehow grow through support-driven sales. And so What we're doing on that end is we're still being very like analyst driven with our support. So people will contact us and we might answer a question about, hey, where can I find this? And then we'll give them the extra mile of, hey, and by the way, I noticed your data. Like this is what this is happening. Here's an article that we talk about that might help you like build your expansion revenue more. And that leads to price intelligently conversations, but it also leads to Oh, and by the way, you know we have this add-on that we charge for. Um, You've been using the free product for a while. Um, This add-on helps solve that problem, and we can actually point to it in the account. And then ultimately, they're able to just one click turn it on. And so, it kind of helps with our own CAC because we're acquiring a free user, and you know they might use it for free forever. But the group of people who are more active, we can probably get them something for paid, and that allows us to obviously make the unit economics work.
1: So, if anybody wants to reach out to you. Probably your content about pricing yeah. is ranks really high on SEO, but other than that, where can they reach Yeah
0: you? that's a that's a good question. So um, you can email me directly, Patrick at priceintelligently.com, and then we're at priceint on Twitter. Uh, yeah, if you have any questions, we're always willing to help. The least we can do is send you a blog post. And you know, if we have time, of course, you know, hop on the phone
1: and chat through any problems that you're having. Thank you so much, Patrick. That was awesome. Yeah, thanks, Thank man. you.